to Chaz's credit, I'm a perfectionist and I would like, oh no, it's gotta be perfect. You know, let's, let's do like 20 of these and then we'll start to release them. No, let's just like press record and do it. And if it's okay, we'll learn and then we'll do it better next week. And then the, the week after that's going to be even better. And this idea of like iterating. And I remember the real moment that gave us permission to just go for it is I remember Chaz said, it's not quality versus quantity. Quantity makes quality. And I was like, oh, okay. So we just keep doing this and we're just going to get better at it every single week. This week, we interviewed the co-hosts of the podcast, The Furious Curious, Charlie Quirk and Britton Rice. In the first 20 minutes of the interview, Chaz and Britt explored the impact of their parents and upbringing on their values, cultivating curiosity and the life attributes that have prepared them for their life in advertising and for having a podcast show that describes itself as being a podcast that unpacks the weird and wonderful of modern cultural phenomena. Charlie discusses his fiendish focus on things that interest him and how it prepared him for a career in strategy in advertising and branding. Britt discusses his dyslexia and how his commitment to working harder enabled him to navigate school and the importance of sport and music in building relationships and empathy. We cover a lot of ground in this interview. We explore the serendipity of their first meeting and the resonating connection that endured. We explore what drew them to advertising and their favourite ads. We deconstruct the organisational structure of agencies and the changing complexion of the business, as well as discussing the evolving role of brands and purpose. For any listeners of The Furious Curious, you'll want to hear their genesis story and how the pair apply their intellectual rigour to delivering their weekly dose of cultural insight and entertainment in a highly engaging manner. We discuss the future of the show and whether the video version is something that they have considered. The quickfire questions also provide a deeper insight into what makes the podcast duo tick. I hope you're engaged, entertained and enlightened by the wit and the wisdom of Charlie Quirk and Britton Rice. Now on with the show. Britton, Charlie, yes. welcome, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thanks, good to be with you. Thanks for, ha- yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, well, this is a this is a novel experience. It's the first time I've had two guests that are podcast hosts, and uh, you very kindly invited me on your podcast, The Furious Curious, a few weeks back to talk about urban regeneration. And someone said to me after that, said, "I think you should interview Britain and Charlie for your podcast." And because I only ever go with who. Um, what people, other people, and other guests say, I have to follow the lead. Uh, so <laughs> it's wonderful to have you on, and I, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having us on, and, and thanks for uh, for joining us a few weeks ago. That was a really great conversation. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed it. So uh, we always uh, try and go back through the arc of our guest journey, and you're. Uh, I think it's fair to say that you're both very much focused career-wise in the advertising and branding and marketing. Um, and so before we get into why you're doing that and your life in, in, that, in, in that industry, and also what you're doing with your podcast, which you launched last year called The Furious Curious, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your, uh, your joint upbringings um, and your childhoods and the impact of your parents. So maybe, Charlie, we could begin with you. And uh, for those that are not heard you before they probably can tell by your accent you're an antipodean australian uh, so perhaps you could talk about where you're born and uh, your your journey through childhood well well thanks mark good to be here i i like the choice of antipodean i feel like the only people that say that are british people that live in america so i love the term i love the term it's not really 
well, you know, used well enough or frequently enough. Uh, so I'm from way out west, a city called Perth, which is the capital of Western Australia. Uh, born in 1981, uh, number two of five children. Uh, my parents, I often tell people, uh, they're like, you remember Statler and Waldorf from The Muppets? The two guys up in the balcony. Um, my, my childhood was like being raised by a pair of, like Statler and Wardloff. Um, they're totally like wisecracking, incredibly curious, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, vociferous, rambunctious type of, um, you know, jovial people. Um, incredibly, um, you know, you, you don't realize this growing up. You just think, oh, my parents are my parents. But in charismatic, socially minded people, very kind people. And I think that that's sort of the genesis of my upbringing. I remember at one point, you know, seeing other people's parents and they were total stiff. So I'm going, oh, gee, so all parents aren't cool. All parents aren't, you know, socially engaging. All parents aren't, <laughs> you know, very intelligent and curious about the world. So I, I was incredibly fortunate to grow up in that environment. And, you know, one of five kids, that, that helped as well. You, you constantly... You know, there's always spats. There's always, you know, a bit of friction with a, a full house of people playing sport and having being pretty free with their opinions. So that was really the environment I grew up in, and um, it was pretty hard to beat, frankly. And Britain? Yeah, so I, I uh, you could, well, some people can tell from my accent that I was born in the Midwest. I grew up in the Midwest. I was born in Chicago and then uh, moved to Wisconsin as a kid. My dad took a job there. And, yeah, I think... Uh, you know, I had really supportive parents. They always supported me in, you know, all my creative phases of life, uh, whether that was like, you know, music or sports or, or whatever. You know, my my parents are, you know, I'm one of two kids. I'm the oldest of two. Um, you know, my, my parents were very, are very different people. And I think that was kind of cool to be raised by very two different people. Um, you know, they never told me, well, you should do this thing or you should go that direction. So I was kind of like very Montessori in that sense. Like they, you know, they had this, they had this sense of, they would try to amplify or support every, anything I was energized by at the time. And obviously that was a lot of different phases. Um, but, you know, I came from this, you know, from my dad's side, a, a line of entrepreneurs, you know, who kind of respected people exploring and, and, and going on roads less traveled. So, um, but yeah, if I wanted to do something in terms of being raised, you know, they always pushed me to really give it my full my full thing, you know, my mom, you know, I get probably a sense of empathy and storytelling and frugalness from my mom. Um, you know, she taught me how to communicate better. And, um, you know, I had trouble speaking as a kid. So she was always really there to help me communicate um, a little bit more clearly. And, she did well. Um, <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So she taught me to get a, a sense of people and how to relate to anybody. And um, so that and, you know, my dad's a really curious i could probably get my curiosity from my dad's side he's very analytical very intense um you know he was a business executive and a startup guy so he you know he always had uh, it's always something i admired about him his focus and um, his way of seeing the future in ways that other people didn't quite pick up on i always admired and um you know he, he was a man of strong integrity small strong morality i pulled uh picked up a lot of that from him um and yeah, it was just, it was just a really great, uh, I, you know, I was, I had a really blessed childhood, uh, you know, not everybody gets that gift. I had that gift. I mean, it both sound like a incredible, um, childhood and growing up in a, with a real sense of abundance. Um, 
We often ask our guests about did they ever encounter scarcity, or scarcity, however you want to say it, um, in any manifestation. And it's always interesting just to see the range of answers that we get. Um, do you have any memories of scarcity in any capacity? Um, you know, I, I had to think about this a little earlier just when I was sort of preparing for the episode. I would say mainly abundance, certainly, um, you know, this idea of, you know, personal growth is accessible only if you go after it and, you know, you can commit to anything, you can have a hard work and opportunities will open up. I will say, you know, growing up at the, the arse end of the earth way down in Western Australia, it was probably a, you know, more of a conventional um, career path. I remember, you know, hearing about various people's career paths, you know, little Johnny and little Susie, they, you know, they studied business, she studied science and they end up in a job that sounds incredibly unappealing to me to my sensibility mm. so mm-hmm. that was perhaps a, a feeling of um you know there's a limited smorgasbord from which to sample and and i certainly mm-hmm. felt that growing up i, I thought uh, all these I, I could do all these things but they all sound incredibly lame and that's what you know when i did end up going overseas and you know and the, and the world changed as well i think the internet has made a lot of careers that perhaps in the past weren't as accessible now they are much more so so for me, I would say scarcity manifested itself in perhaps the, the perception of limited options. Britain? Yeah, I, I think from a financial perspective, uh, you know, I always, you know, I kind of, you know, my parents, my parents had money, they had means, they had jobs. Um, I think, uh, but what, I think what was really interesting is I grew, as I grew older, I realized even though they had a bit of money, they really avoided what I would call money culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did have this sense of, I always had this sense of scarcity in the sense that I needed to work for what I, you know, I needed, I needed to earn everything I got. Um, you know, it was nice to be in a quiet neighborhood and, and, you know, a house and all that stuff. And as a kid, you don't really quite know the difference. Um, but you know, in hindsight, I think, you know, my parents took really great stride to protect me from this, you know, sense of superiority or entitlement or, or even abundance actually. Um, and I think that was, I think that's helped me a lot as, as an adult. Um, I think they saw, you know, growing up starting in the North shore of Chicago, I think they saw a lot of that kind of influence that could happen negatively if you weren't paying attention. So, um, but yeah, you know, I had to, I had to pay my way for things. I, I, you know, I wore used clothes, used cars, you know, crappy crappy apartments uh bartended all that stuff that was really good for the soul so taught me self-reliance and um it taught me that sense of scarcity i think in a really really good way uh-huh. so it's um yeah it is interesting because i the reason i ask it is to try and yeah look at understand the different life paths and the attitude to mm. life that people have adopted as a result of either having growing up with economic scarcity or in a situation some situation with abundance but as you say not being uh over privileged by it and therefore becoming lackadaisical and lacking ambition and it's it's right. always very interesting just to sort of uh, get the sense of how parents have conditioned the environment and their attitudes and the values of their children so so uh, thank you for the answer yeah, yeah. It's cool to see it. And I think it as as we grow older, we appreciate or not appreciate, depending uh, what that looks like. So that's been kind of a reflection of mine over, over the past few years of, oh, how, how really was it? What were the decisions that my parents made that I'm benefiting from now? So, yeah, it's a good hindsight. 
Now, as I said at the beginning, you're both uh, pursued careers through the world of advertising in its general sense, uh, advertising branding. Um, <laughs> I think it's fair to say that to uh, have a successful career in advertising, uh, one of the core ingredients is an innate curiosity. And given you have a podcast called The Furious Curious, uh, I'm, uh, clearly you are two curious uh, characters driven by curiosity. Um, but how was it cultivated by your parents when you were younger? Or is this just something that was natural to you? I mean, for me personally, I, I remember the, the biggest, you know, <laughs> faux pas or, or, or crime in the household that one could commit would be to meet someone to, and to not ask questions. Uh, like, mm-hmm. like my dad was quite a stickler. He would, you know, if he dropped me off somewhere, ask questions. And like, you know, if we run into someone he hadn't seen mm. in the street and he'd say, oh, did you see that guy? Like, he didn't ask me any questions. It, like, he, it, what it means is he doesn't care. And, mm-hmm. and just, uh, you know, that was sort of a constant refrain. And I thought that's, that's quite charming. I mean, my mother will go on a, a flight and she'll go, oh, I've, I've made three Facebook friends. Like, like she's probably like at the, at the tip of the spear. <laughs> she's intensely curious. But I do think like the perception that one has no empathy or curiosity in the world around them or the people around them is seen as a little bit of a, a tone deaf way of being in the world. So that was certainly um, certainly a staple of my childhood and, and remains to you know remains the case. I, I like striking up a conversation with various people, whoever I see, you know, I, I think you can always learn from someone no matter who they are, because they've got a totally different life to you. And uh, it's just, you know, I, I can't think of a, the, the alternative approach to life being being better in any sense. No, that's great. Great answer. Brilliant. Yeah, I think I think I think for me, I was always taught a sense of curiosity. My, my dad especially was always interested in new topics and um, you know, my grandparents too, seeing my grandparents, you know, they were always devouring a, a book or, um, you know, they always stayed intellectually active like that. And even as a kid, that really inspired me to see how, you know, even as you grow, how important it was to continue to learn. Um, so I come from this kind of legacy of curious people and hungry learners. And um, like I said, I, I think it helped me give me, give me, gave me per- permission to, you know, indulge my own curiosity. So I think for like advertising, I think since advertising is always changing, mm-hmm. there's always kind of new spaces that emerge from all these paradigm shifts that seem to be happening faster and faster. And I think if you keep that, as they say in Zen, like that beginner's mm-hmm. mind that you, you don't know what you don't know. And you're always interested to see what, what's just over that hill or, or between, you know, around that corner, I think is a really important attribute f- to stay, to keep in creativity and in advertising. And I think, I think if you're not willing to keep your ear to the floor, you know, you're going to go deaf, so to speak. So mm-hmm. I think for, for, for Chaz and I, I think doing this podcast has kind of by design has forced us to always pay attention to what's going on right now to continually have an accountability thing to learn to know what we're talking about and so there's a little bit of like self-benefit baked into the podcast for sure you know okay well before we get into that let's um just give us a bit more of a background and your journey through school for the young charlie and Britt. sure uh well i certainly enjoyed school i was sort of one of those classic um I don't know if I matured a little early. I, I don't, you know, I wasn't physically big or anything, but I, I really enjoyed it. Like, so duck to water out of the gate. Uh, you know, I'm quite a, an outspoken person. Uh, you know, I enjoy, 
enjoy the writing, I enjoy the learning. So I did well. I'd say around, you know, 10th or 11th grade, I started, you know, losing a bit of interest in things that did not interest me. I'm like, what? This seems so impractical. And, mm. you know, in a, a year or two, I was sort of, I checked out a bit and I turned it around eventually. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, there's so many great things to learn and, and, and so many things to, to learn from very, uh, you know, out in the world that when I was sort of forced to, do, you know, learn about something that I was not particularly interested in, I found it incredibly hard to get inspired to, to you know, focus on it and commit to the task at hand. But, you know, and, and similarly, when I went to college, I, I thought, you know, I'd, I played a lot of sport in high school, whether, you know, Australian football, rugby, cricket. I ended up playing uh, what, what would be considered here as sort of minor league Australian football. So that was really the focus on along a lot of my sort of developmental years. I started a sports science degree at the University of Western Australia. And, you know, I, I you know, approached it with a degree of um, a lack of enthusiasm, one might say. And I ended up, uh, you know, transferring to another college and, you know, hit my straps and ended up, you know, doing a master's degree in international relations. I would say the red thread throughout is I'm, I'm fiendishly focused on things that I'm interested in and often not remotely in things that I'm not. So I am fortunate that uh, I happen to be interested in a lot of different things. Um, it can be somewhat... Um, omnidirectional and, and omnivorous in my consumption of information. But I, I think it's been, it helped me as it relates to my, you know, my career path. Uh, but at the same time, I think, you know, I could have been more focused over the years as well. What about you, Brett? Well, I know, I know Chaz is not, he does not like talking on the phone. That's for sure. Really? What do you mean? It's no, <laughs> news to me. Um, I <laughs> just kidding. No, I think uh, in school. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I, I struggled in school. You know, I was, um, I was dyslexic. Uh, my learning style was different. Um, at the time, I think, you know, this is the 80s, so I think there was a lot of misunderstanding and miscategorization. I was kind of categorized as dis- disabled, and they didn't really understand alternative learning styles, and I think as a kid that was, that was tough. And I realized early I had to, you know, I had to persevere. That was the way I was going to achieve anything it wasn't going to be necessarily by my innate uh, intellect or my intelligence but it was really going to be I could you know what was what, what could I control well maybe I couldn't read as fast or or think as fast but I could work harder and that really kind of stuck with me you know for a long time I think over over time I I kind of recontextualized that that past of you know how difficult it was at school um, but you know like Chaz and I did I did a lot of music. I did a lot of sports, um, you know, obviously a career, you know, I think all those things in a certain way, it was always a version of me working as hard as I could and proving to myself, um, you know, that I could do certain things, but, you know, I think school, school socially for me, I was, you know, I was a, I was a hockey player. So I was kind of this jock by day, but then I was kind of truly a punk rock guy so like i'd play drums in my friend's basement with my with my punk friends at night so i was kind of able to shift in and out of like social circles which was cool and i think it it gave me this social education of how to really identify with people who are maybe very different than me and that was really cool but um, i think that was really you know my my schooling kind of got off to a rocky start uh in terms of academics yeah Mm -hmm. Just a, a point when you mentioned hockey as a uh, as being Scottish or, or British, uh, yeah. we think about it as uh, sticks and and grass fields. 
But I take oh, yeah, field ice, hockey. <laughs> ice hockey, yeah. Yes, ice hockey. Yes, sorry, yeah. I should clarify. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Before jumping into your life focus and career and what you're doing with the podcast, uh, aside from the clearly uh, the influence of your parents um, on your career trajectory and your life values, um, are there any other mentors or people that influenced you that defined your worldview or the journey and the direction you've taken? I mean, f- for me, you know, I- I'm very fortunate to have a, a-, a good bunch of friends growing up, um, all, you know, reasonably high achievers and all sort of insightful in their own ways. I've also been fortunate enough to have a, a handful of, like, good bosses uh, that have, you know, showed me the ropes and, and how to, you know, w- some of them are <laughs> less likable than others, but the commitment to the craft, the commitment to kicking the tires on any idea... The commitment to sort of you know, ethical integrity has been good over the years. Um, what one guy that I'll always consult uh, around any important sort of career decision, Mark, is, is the guy who actually introduced you and I, Grant Theron, South African guy. He's mm-hmm. a, a you know CEO of an advertising firm right now. Other people over the years are Mike Harris, perhaps one of the funniest people I've ever met. He, he's got some very interesting uh, career things. Uh, might, we might have to get him on the pod, Britt. Uh, Mike Harris, he, he's really yeah. helped me tell a story uh, and also pr- produced a great degree of uh, you know insight and, and brought that to my life. Uh, I'd say that they're sort of some of the two key figures for me. What about you, Britt? Uh, yeah, I th- you know, it's actually this is going to sound kind of tragic. I never really... You know, I think I would consider the closest mentor being my 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 father. You know, in terms of career, you know, I always had to kind of get my mentorship kind of from afar. Um, you know, I never really got to have like a close mentor who was really necessarily invested in my my growth. So I kind of I always kind of like picked up on things that I was like, oh, I like that. I want to be more like him in that way, and would kind of pick up these kind of bits and pieces you know, kind of, kind of glean those from afar, which, you know, I, you know, I always kind of wish I had had somebody who was a little bit showing me the ropes earlier on, but, you know, for, for a lot of, for a lot of my professional life, you know, I had to kind of, I was kind of out on my own trying to pick things up and kind of discover things for myself. Hmm. So before, actually, this is a good point. Before we get into your uh, talking about advertising, where did your paths yeah. first cross? We we actually met at an agency here in San Francisco, and and, and you know I, yeah. I can't remember exactly the moment or how it happened. I, I think there was a situation where I I was walking past your general area a bit. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And I think maybe uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Britt. But did you have some like a like a were you wearing a brewer's cap or or did you have like a no? I'm serious, <laughs> like because I, I do remember like the fact that you were from Wisconsin was a talking point like 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 he made me i'm going to stop and talk to this guy to show that i know about brewer's history like could i be wrong about that or am i imagining that (laughs) no there was something like that i I was actually really surprised at how your um your brewer's trivia was so was so spot on you know your your knowledge of robin yount and paul molitor and 
<laughs> Raleigh fingers. <laughs> yeah, and Raleigh, uh, the Raleigh finger. Yes. Uh, so I think I was I was always remarked at like how this this guy's from Australia, but man, he he goes hyper local when it comes to sports. I loved it. <laughs> I, I loved that. I, I I do remember it was uh, it, it was at that agency, and I I remember what I remember about you besides your incredible knowledge of uh, Midwestern professional sports was. Uh, you you had the sweetest like Wolverine. I think they yeah. were Wolverine. Still got him. Thousand miles. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was like, wow, that the, a guy who wears that kind of boots. Like, I want to meet that guy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'd just been living in Detroit. That's why. <laughs> yeah. Well, you had you had a really you had a really great confidence and swagger about you, and I was like, this this guy's cool. And I think it's one of those things, you know, Mark, where just certain people. I don't know if it's like we're you know, the same dust from a different distant star or same star, you know, I don't know what it is, but you, know, you just had those things where, you know, all of a sudden you just resonate really, really quickly. And there's, there's kind of something almost otherworldly about that. And for, for Chaz and I, it was just that right away. Like we just immediately became really connected. And like, we got to talk, we talked about things. Our sense of humor was the same. Our interests were the same. Um, so it's, yeah, it was really kind of cool. It's just kind of one of those like right off the bat. It was like, oh, this this is a guy I'm going to probably know for the rest of my life. Okay, it's yeah. interesting you mentioned um, the term dust because I was um, as I was preparing this, and it, I understand why you got into advertising um, because it's um, it's a bit of a polarizing career. Some people mm. um, respect it, and other people. Um, it and uh, a lot of yeah. derogatory comments particularly because of the way the world we're living in at the moment and the role of um, hidden persuaders let's say but the, mm-hmm. the, I got into it um, back in the late 80s because I was sharing an apartment with a uh, flat in, in Edinburgh with a guy that worked for ah. a, an agency in Edinburgh called McCann Erickson Edinburgh <laughs> <laughs> um, funnily enough I didn't really know anything about it but he he was an art director and he used to talk to me about advertising and I was just finished my my business degree um, at uh, Napier uh, University in Edinburgh and he used to talk about the great ads and we talk about that but he also talked mm-hmm. about the great ad guys mm-hmm. uh, the mad men and mm-hmm. one of them was Bernbach uh, um, Bill Bernbach from uh, famous uh, famed Doyle Dane Bernbach DDB and the many quotes and he got me into what Bernbach said and one of the great quotes I've, that's always lived with me and if I think back to why I got into advertising yeah. it's really the power of ideas the power yeah. of ideas to change the world and he had a great quote which was an, an idea and when you mentioned dust an idea can turn to dust or magic depending on the talent that rubs against it so that yes, that's was great true. and when you and when i think back to the ads the great ads that inspire me to think oh, i want to be part of these great turning great ideas into magic i think about the apple 1984 ad the guardian points of view ad yeah so perhaps you could maybe just explain um, what the appeal for to, of advertising was to you, and uh, what uh, maybe what were the great ads that uh, inspired you mm-hmm. to get into this career, and also then maybe just explain because I think a lot of people don't understand the structure of the ad industry and the roles mm-hmm. that people play between planning and creative and under copywriting and art directing and that type of thing. So, Britt, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I think. So for the, the appeal of advertising for me, you know, it was early on. You know, I mentioned, I think, Mark, when we spoke last, I, I used to go to New York um, as a kid in the 80s. My my aunt worked. Uh, she was a creative director at YNR, and I got to kind of see her life 
kind of from the outside and it was always really interesting. And then I think as I realized over time, I, you know, I realized I was more or less a pretty creative type if you want to categorize me. And I think, you know, I loved this coming from, you know, being the son of a, of a business executive. I loved this idea of the power of ideas, like you said, and I love the idea of this, of business and creativity intersecting and creating something. And, you know, I think advertising as, as you see probably on TV, like Mad Men, you know, it attracts neurotic people. Um, it attracts wild people. Um, it's kind of the rock and roll, the business world. I think I was always, I always had that streak in me. I always had this streak of being neurotic a little bit and being a little bit unpredictable. And um, so I was attracted to an industry that kind of had a home for that, for those types of people, so a little bit of a misfit even. Um, so, and also the idea of, I love the idea of being able to see something that you made. And that was something that, you know, I would used to like my, my grandfather as a hobby used to woodwork. And I used to just love the idea of seeing the result of your toil. And there was something really cool about that. Um, but yeah, I think just the, the creativity of it, the intensity of it, the high stakes, you know, this, the, the lighted stage of it, you know, I'm a performer at heart. So all, all of that stuff really attracted uh, attracted me to advertising. You know, I remember watching commercials as a kid and it looked fun and it seemed like there was probably a career in it. I, you know, um, ads off the top of my head are going to be, you know, I know there was a lot of great ads, you know, when growing up, but I remember, and these probably do not age well, but the crystal Pepsi, uh, with the Van Halen song right now, mm -hmm. I absolutely was like taken over by that. Um, the old cotton ads, um, you know, that with that tender voice of Aaron Neville, you know, the touch, the feel, you know, anybody? Yeah. Um, and that tag, that tagline, the fabric, the fabrics of our lives. Um, you know, I think they feel a bit corny now, but at the time, man, you know, for me, that that idea that an ad could could create like a universe, it could it could change how you saw something. It could make you feel something. It could make you, you know, and I was a deep feeler as even as a kid. So that really, really resonated with me. And, you know, I, 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 I also come from a tradition of storytellers. So storytelling was always really uh, powerful to me, which is I became a writer. But, you know, I think that that sentiment stuck with me. And, you know, I feel like now in my professional life, there's there's always this there's this moral obligation, I think, you know, because, Mark, you talk about so it's such a polarizing industry. Mm -hmm. Some people view it as. A nuisance some people think it's really cool i've i've encountered both of those people um but like you know this i think this obligation of like if you're going to take somebody's attention and their time you know you better give them something valuable in return um otherwise you're stealing something that, that they can't get back and i kind of view that as grand theft <laughs> actually so um that's always been kind of my point of view it's kind of what attracted me and helped you know help me stick with you know, staying in an advertising industry, which is super hard to, uh, it's, it's tough. It's a rough, it's a rough industry. Everybody knows that everybody can see that from the inside or the out. So Chaz. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, what you said something earlier than Brit was, uh, quite poignant and connected with me, uh, this result of the toil, like at the end of the day, something will yeah. get made and that could be a titanic pile of garbage, but at least you've, <laughs> at, at least you've made something. Right. And I think, so many careers, you know, you, like, you know, for a period I worked in the Australian uh, Parliament 
uh, you know, you're you're a bureaucrat essentially at that point, and your job is essentially being a, a paper pusher of some, in some capacity. It could be in service of something wonderful. Mm-hmm. That's great, but a lot of the time, it is just you know this menial kind of shallow work that doesn't require a lot of deep thought. And I, I like the idea that at the end of the day, in the ad world, um, you know, there's going to be some type of artifact created that you know your name is on it. You've played a role in it, however big or however small. There was something compelling about that. Like you, you've, there's a physical artifact uh, that signifies the fruits of your labors. I, I really like that. I, I also think, um, me personally, why I gravitated towards it, uh, like since I've lived in the United States, people often make this com- you know, comment about me. They say, so why do they teach in Australian schools? Is it like American pop culture or something? And, <laughs> and I, I, I guess I've always drank from the cup of, of, of you know, pop culture and, and advertising and logos and design and creativity. Uh, even, even if it wasn't, you, you wouldn't know that that's what I was necessarily interested in. It was always what I was. It's always the you know how I feel most alive. An early ad, uh, Mark, that was for Uncle Toby's. Uh, it was like a, a porridge brand in Australia, and they had this Scottish kid on it. And I, I always thought, why did they get the Scottish kid on an Australian porridge ad? Like I was always trying to understand the rationale behind the decision. And um, mm. I'll never forget that line. It's like, I, it's delicious, but that's not how you make porridge. Sorry, I had to get that in. I had to get we're, it in. We're gonna, we'll, we'll do some coaching calls okay. after this. <laughs> Sorry, it's great. And then some of the other yeah. ones that I really liked, I remember there was some Reebok mm. preseason ads with Emmett Smith that would you know come over to Australia. <gasps> they were great. And you know, oh, yeah. all men are created equal. Some just work harder in the preseason. I remember those shoes, and then it was Nike, the Instant Karma. It, that that ah, ad, that was a wonderful. Wasn't ad. it? It was amazing. But I guess yeah. one as a kid seeing these ads growing up, you don't think of them as ads. You think of them as like inspiring and damning pieces of film, which is actually what they were. Which yeah. is also what uh, 1984 was, right? So mm-hmm. I think they're very appealing to a youthful sensibility. Oh, this is something that I could be- perhaps participate in as I grow up. That sounds infinitely cooler than being a doctor, lawyer, delivery driver, you name it, right? So, uh, and, and my attitude hasn't changed in the several decades since. Mm. And as we mentioned, Mad Men, um, could you just explain the difference in the roles and how the, and how the roles haven't really changed, but the nature and the structure of the industry has, cha- has changed and, and what's happening right now? Sure. Britt, you want to take this or you want me to take this? Yeah, I, th- I think so. So I think, you know, in general, you know, that the advertising chain of production or creation, I should say, um, from, you know, from the pre ad to the finished ad, I think the roles, I think, I think what you're getting at, Mark, is, you know, there's different roles. So mm-hmm. there's, let's say, for example, how does a TV spot get made, right? So it starts with, um, you know, connecting with the client. And understanding what they want to do, what they're going to sell, you know, understanding all those things and creating a brief. And where where Chaz, as a strategist, would come in is really create and set up a really great creative brief that sets up the creative, um, the creative team for creating that TV spot, for example. And that TV spot, the creative team would consist of a copywriter, something I used to do, still do. I guess I'm an ACD now, but or associate creative director now. But you know, you always continue to create there's art directors 
um, who take care of the visuals. There's designers who typically handle more of the uh, logo and brand stuff. Um, and then there's creative directors who kind of help them cultivate ideas to get them to a certain spot. And then um, you have producers, which help you take that TV spot, that script, that storyboard, whatever that is, and really turn that into something real. So that's helping you choose a um, a production company to help actually shoot the, the TV spot itself. Somebody who's a director. Um, people don't know this, but a lot of people don't know this, but you know, TV, TV spots have a director, just like a film has a director. Um, you know, a lot of those roles are still in play. Um, and that's typically how things are delivered. And then you have, you know, the client will have purchased um, certain media spots to put that that ad whether that's during an nba game or whether that's during a, a sitcom or whatever and that's typically how the chain works i think in terms of madmen culture i think over the past five years Chaz, i think we've both witnessed a pretty seismic shift in what started out as still you had that taste that residual taste of a boys club um in advertising and i think for 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 good that has finally kind of gone away i think the martini lunches have gone away um most of the time the um the suits have definitely gone away um that's unfortunate because i like wearing suits but i think i think a lot of the intensity and and cutthroat nature of things is still kind of there in mm -hmm. terms of you know how Mad Men tells that story. What, what do you think, Chaz? Yeah, I, I think you did a, a really good job of encapsulating the different disciplines and roles and how they've all got to work together. I, as a you know, not not a perfect metaphor, but I often think of uh, the 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 key, I guess, disciplines of the ad business. There's account, you know, yeah. account management and production oh. as like almost the defenders. I think. I actually forgot to mention the account people. I'm oh, that's, they, they, that, that's such a creative <laughs> mistake. You're going to be pulled up they, on that they, later they, by some of your so team. Yeah. I, I think know. them as the, the defenders. I think of the strategy people as the midfielders, and I think of the creatives as the attackers, as the, as the forwards. That they they're the glory hunters. That's really at the end of the day, they're really the people who uh, they're the stars of the show. Like at the end of the day clients don't want to pay for more you know people who keep the trains on the rails they think that's a commodity i can find well-organized people anywhere but at the end of the day it's you know creativity is you know the straw that stirs the drink of the advertising field no, no agency you know most of the time no agency gets fired for having too many good ideas and, you know, the more ideas you can have, it really is the lifeblood of a client relationship and, and client approval and, you know, making more money as an agency. So I, I think you did a great job. I also think people often say, oh, you know, Don, Don Draper, oh, you know, or it was, uh, what's it called, Mad Men. Oh, who are you in that agency? Are you more like Don? Are you more like Pete Campbell? Are you more like Roger? I'm like, well, well, actually, my role didn't exist back in the 60s. Like, it was sort of late <laughs> 60s. But that's when the, the strategist, who was essentially like, the representative of the consumer's interest came about. Then it was called account planner and it still is. Yeah. It's basically my, my role has been to figure out why the consumer will care. And here is the insight yep. that unveils that truth. So that, sorry, it's a roundabout way of describing it, but uh, I don't know if that's helpful, Mark. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it is. It's just that a lot of people listen to this. So will probably be interested in learning more about the industry or may have children that are considering. It. So it's always good to get 
um, uh, an insider's perspective on the structure and where the industry is. And I think, Mark, you know, just back to the account account thing, I think the, these models are starting to change where actually, for example, the, the agency that, that uh, Chaz and I recently worked at, they didn't have account people at all. And actually, producers kind of absorb some of that role and then the clients absorb some of that role. So I think we're even, even in the traditional roles that we just talked about, those are ever-changing and ever-evolving. Um, but, you know, to Chaz's point, I think ideas are always the... You know, it's always the gas that keeps that keeps things going. It keeps it keeps people excited. It keeps people invested in really putting in those hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but just before we get to um, get into the Furious Curious, I, mean, yeah. I, I um, feel and I sense, and speaking to a lot of friends that have been are in the industry or have left, there's a bit of a crisis at the heart of the industry, a soul searching that's going on, whether it be within agencies or within brands, to understand how to deal with the fact that people feel, uh, 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 consumers, as you, as you said, Charlie, um, you represent their interests, but people know that we, it's unsustainable to continue the consumerism that we've, f- uh, that's the industry's fed off for decades. But at the same time, brands have a role in people's lives and people continue, need to continue to buy and, and repurchase different brands and make their brand choices. Could you maybe just talk a bit about the the role that's talked about a lot uh, over over recent years, which is the role of brand purpose and and how that's being embraced within agencies? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's certainly a a point of fascination for me because, you know, certainly a book, Jim Stengel wrote a book. He was the CMO at um, PNG, exactly, uh, for years, and he basically had this rubric of, of brand purpose saying that brands that adhere to you know socially conscious ideas outperform brands that do not over a period of time now intelligent people have you know challenged this and there's been a lot of debate and discussion around this um the idea of you know brit you and i have talked about this idea of greenwashing or, or purpose washing mm-hmm. a, a lot of that is it's totally understandable in a world that is more socially aware and more more environmentally conscious it's like okay brands need to be stewards of the environment they need to be stewards of culture and, and sort of, I guess, corporate morality. Uh, the the problem with a lot of that is brands have seeked, sought to align themselves with a degree of purpose that may or may not have anything to do with what their product offering is. And yeah. in that sense, in, in many respects, it's like borrowing a celebrity for a campaign. It is borrowed equity. You are not that mm. purpose necessarily. And I think a handful of brands who have authentically done it well Number one, you know, if you ask me, is, is Patagonia over the years. But I think a lot of brands have tried to do it and not done it well. And that's where I think there has the pendulum has swung a little bit, from my understanding, a little bit away from brand purpose to be like, how can we talk more creatively about specifically what our product or service offers? So that, that's my take on it overall. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I would resonate this. I, I mean, honestly, when I when I saw that question, I was like, Yeah, that's exactly the issue. I think from a high level, you know, brands are, I think people are demanding of brands to be more and more this and more and more that. And to Chaz's point, sometimes those things don't necessarily fit nicely in their ethos. You know, they're, they're kind of asked to fall in line and, you know, how do, how do brands keep, how do they, how do they, this pressure to acquiesce to these ever-changing demands? And a lot of them are good. Um, You know, we talk about, environmental considerations, inclusivity considerations. Um, these are all really good things, but how does a brand stand out and stay distinct while trying to reckon with a lot of these 
um, these kind of changing demands. So I think I think that's going to be a challenge for them. I think e-commerce this year, developing like an e-commerce strategy. I know that sounds really kind of like on the nose, but I think that's going to be a big, a big, a big thing coming up for brands like they can't rely on third-party cookies mm-hmm. anymore we talked about yeah. that's going to be changing here pretty soon so digital advertising um you know that's been dominated by a small number of media platforms you know they brands now are going to face a, a more of a daunting task to manage that activity across a totally changing again paradigm changing um digital advertising landscape so those are the challenges I see um, in terms of brand purpose. I'm just resonating with Chaz. I think it's a way to differentiate yourself. And I think feeling better about the per- the purchase that you are making in a sea of options, I think is a really real key thing. And, and to Chaz's point, again, Patagonia does that really, really well. Cool. Okay. Uh, Let's talk about Furious Curious. You launched it, uh, you launched it last year. Um, uh, you describe it as a podcast that unpacks the weird and the wonderful <laughs> of modern <laughs> f- cultural phenom- phenomena. Um, I mean, it's uh, it's a it's a delightful, um, entertaining, and educational um, podcast. But what what's what triggered it, and and why the name? You, you know, <laughs> um, we were try- we we had a brief chat last night, Mark, to try and figure out how to talk about this and. Brit, we're, yeah. Did people come to us and said you guys should do a pod? Uh, I think you know various colleagues would say it sort of half jokingly because uh, they had observed some of the conversations that we'd been having, you know, sort of in in, yeah. in and around to the office. And then it was like, uh, should we? And we're both big podcast fans, and and I think there was that degree of we could probably do this. All right. Well, what do you reckon? Like, there's going to be some technical challenges, but we could probably do this. What do you think? I mean, Britt, am I am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, it was just based on I think conversations that you and I would always have, and people would, I think people were entertained by the chemistry that yeah. you and I had. Um, we they were entertained by our conversations, and so we kind of were like, oh, you know, I don't know if it was a suggestion or if we just thought about it or or how that you know sometimes you never know really what the, where that spark was, but. We at some point we thought, oh, you know, maybe we should put a structure to this and put a microphone between us. And I, th- I feel like the pan- the pandemic just kind of pushed us to finally go yeah. all in on it. Um, but it that's I think that's kind of how it started. You know, we thought about okay, how, what can we do? You know, what can be our little? Sp- I think thinking through it, Mark. Um, we kind of forgot that Chaz and I were talking like last night. Like, oh wait, how did this happen <laughs> again? Like, how did we actually get to this point? I think part of it was we were trying to figure out what what's our little space in the world of the of this this ever expanding universe of of podcasting. You know, what can we do? And we talked there was a couple of things like, oh, what if we did like the greatest of all time stuff? Well, that kind of that idea was kind of taken and we kept kind of refining and being like, no, what's really the core of our chemistry and our in our friendship? And it's it was really about understanding the why of things we love to like really understand well it's because of this no i think it's because of that or oh what if it's because of this you know we always had that curiosity and just that that kind of unreplicatable chemistry you know anybody probably could talk about cultural phenomena um but we we do it in our own way that is unique to us and um you know and i think the other thing is we as we went on we know we started you, you know our first episode normcore for example you know you could definitely tell we didn't know what we were doing. We, the, the audio wasn't good. You know, it was a really big room. 
boomy room, one microphone. And I think to, to, to Chaz's credit, I'm a perfectionist and I would like, Oh no, it's gotta be perfect. You know, let's, let's do like 20 of these and then we'll start to release them. No, let's just like press record and do it. And if it's okay, we'll learn and then we'll do it better next week. And then the, the week after that's going to be even better. And this idea of like iterating. And I remember the real moment that gave us permission to just go for it is I remember Chaz said, it's not quality versus quantity. Quantity makes quality. And I was like, Oh, okay. So we just keep doing this and we're just going to get better at it every single week. Um, hopefully. But I think that's really how it, how it was. And we always have tried to keep, keep it entertaining, like to your point, Mark, entertaining and useful. That's kind of always our, our guardrails. We don't always hit that. Sometimes, you know, I don't know how much executive haircuts is really a <laughs> useful <laughs> topic for people, but it's at least entertaining. So sometimes we lean one way or the other, uh, but that's kind of that. That's typically how we've tried to do it. And that's kind of how the Genesis started, but we went through a whole litany of names. Chaz was. Getting yeah. Them up. Yeah. Mark, <laughs> you, you touched on the names and I have to give Brit credit because like most of these are his um, and he actually came up with the Furious Curious as well. But there was, I actually, I forgot about the League of Intrigue. That was, yeah. Oh, yeah. The League of Intrigue. Um, kicking the tires of kickassery. <laughs> uh, one of them was the five whys. Um, uh, what else are we? Which we yeah. rolled into the actual program, uh, and then we call yeah. the Goat Show, the sim, you know Fascination Nation. We we had a lot of obscure ones, all of them good. I mean, uh, we played with the idea of unreasonably deep. It was a little could come across a little tawdry, but I, I think it's kind of we we go into unreasonable depth about some pretty pedestrian topics. But we try and look for what's interesting about them. So ultimately, I think the Furious Curious is, is probably the, as good a name as we could have found, and uh, you know people have commented over. Over the years, or over the year, uh, that has been great. That has been really interesting, and, and people like the name. So, well, I think it captures the intellectual rigor that is probably um, natural to both your personalities and also the industry that you represent. So, it seems to be very appropriate. Though I do like the League of Intrigue. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> could well, be you know, we we've, we've been trying to figure out how how to name like what's the name our our, our cohorts our our listeners. Uh-huh. Chaz, I think we could, maybe we could go back to that list, Fascination, Fascination Nation or League of Intrigue, <laughs> something like yeah. that. We'll, we'll think about that. So, okay. Well, yeah. you've covered a spectrum of topics um, that, as you say, from uh, executive haircuts, but to those with, <laughs> that have covered uh, sort of deep social issues yeah. um, such as mental health and ageism recently to um, cultural trends like sneaker culture or minimalism all the way through to Ber- Bernie memes. And um, uh, I just love to understand how do you land on these, and then how do you decide where, what's within the realms of acceptable topics, and what's not. I mean, I would say it's more art than science. Like, like we we have a yeah. document uh, where we keep a, a running tally of potential topics, and and people shoot ones towards us, and uh, and we think, okay, is this is this worth discussing? Is it going to be broadly interesting? Or other topics that people have suggested, we're like, oh, that that's going to be a lightning rod, um, and we we think mm-hmm. that that might be challenging to do without sort of um, you know, either making career limiting moves for ourselves, <laughs> or mm-hmm. or, or you know, finding a bunch of people things that we neither of us want to do, right? So, um, and then there'll be a topic like like NFTs. 
five of my friends over in a very short period of time suggested that we do nfts right so it's um again it's it's more it's it's jazz more than mathematics <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. you know the only i guess uh you know qualifying you know condition is the fact that brit and i both got to think it's a good idea right Okay. Yeah, I think it's been an intentional balance. I think, like, yeah, art more than science for sure. I mean, we're still learning to get it right, I think. And I think, you know, I think between things that we like, things that, like, we see as emerging based on actual very empirical data. I mean, you could even talk about just tr- search trends. Start there. Yeah. Um, you know, having worked for Google, we're very aware of we, we have – really robust metrics that we get that anybody has access to. And then I think the other thing is just what's going to be valuable to that, to that listener. Um, You know, Chaz is really good at reminding us going back to that audience thing. You know, that's his, you know, that's his, that's his job as a strategist, you know, how is this relevant to the audience? And he keeps bringing us back to that listener. Why should they care? Why does this matter? You know, I think a lot of podcasts probably don't ask that question enough of themselves. And um, Chaz is really good at keeping us, we, we have to have an on, honest answer to that question every single time. So, um, but also people really enjoy the banter uh, more than we thought, you know, we thought we, what we thought was kind of extra fluff is actually has become really actually the bread and butter of, of the podcast. So um, that's kind of how we've been deciding over time, you know, and we, we measure it. Yeah. Is this going to, can we really walk through this landmine? Can we really do something and add value to this topic you know, or are we just going to create, are we just going to get into the weeds? You know, we really try to be fair and avoid things that, you know, a lot of people have complimented this past year, you know, people were saying, gosh, all the, all the negative news and the pandemic and all this, you guys have really just been able to stay above the fray. And it's been kind of a, an oasis for a lot of people mm-hmm. to not have to think about, you know, a presidential election or a pandemic. I mean, we've, we've touched on the pandemic of how it impacts culture and society but uh we haven't really gotten into the you know we haven't gone into the weeds about things and i think for a lot of people that's a reprieve and it's added value to the podcast so because the one that that made me wonder about this of how you curate how do you create your own guardrails was karen Hmm. (laughs) that that felt like it was somewhere outside of the although be a it's a it was a social potentially inflammatory social issue that happened Mm -hmm. related to the black lives matter movement and race and navigating that within the the structure of how you approach it must be quite challenging and there's so many things because of you as you say you're curious people you could easily start to create a a cultural commentary on things that are happening Mm -hmm. but as you say you stay above that above the weeds so you know that one must have been a bit of a challenge and there must be areas that you've looked at and gone, nah, this isn't right for the show. Yeah, well, yeah. as it relates to Karen, I, I think the idea of Karen evolved quite quickly when certain sort of, you know, there was, I think, an Instagram account, yeah. Karen's Gone Wild. Uh, but, but basically, like, <laughs> what it was as, as what it was and what it evolved to be became sort of two subtly different things. And, it, yeah, it's probably something we would now, we, we may not, we may not do if if we just thought of it now said oh it might be a little bit um a little too spicy a topic but that was actually one of our best received um episodes i actually shared it with a lot of people before we published it to say oh what do you think is there anything wrong with this and no one did so and i think it's probably because we try and 
approach something with the the, the right spirit. I, I think we're not trying to be flamethrowers or deliberately bombastic. If if anything has offended anyone, it's absolutely um, you know unintentional. We, we we're, we're tough on each other as well. Like we'll we'll, we'll put stuff mm-hmm. in. We we'll go no, maybe we can't say that. Let, 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 let's not say that. You know, someone might take it the wrong way. So we, you know, we we do kick the tires on our own episodes, and uh, just you know, we think it's sort of in the spirit of being responsible around what we put out in the world as well. So. That's that's certainly one. I'm trying to think of another one. Other topics that people have suggested to us, uh, certainly cancel culture has come up a lot. They've said, you guys should try and approach mm-hmm. that. We've tried to figure out a way to do it. Um, what else have we talked about, Britt, that we've tried to steer clear of? Uh, conspiracy yep. theories. Uh, yeah. I know QAnon was a big topic for a while. People asked about that. Uh, you know, again, we we gotta we want to be able to have a take on it, and sometimes some of these just, you know, I think some of the, some of the things we would have to do is it, we'd have to we'd have to bring up the drone so high that are we really saying anything <laughs> at all? And if we get it too low, are we getting into the minutia of things that are just gonna, you know, are the, are they just gonna become hooks in our skin that we can't pull out? Mm-hmm. So, I think I think I'm trying to think of some other ones. What were some other ones that we just said? No, we're not gonna touch that with a ten foot pole. Um, I don't even think we put yeah, them on the yeah. list. I think most of the time it's just like, <laughs> nope, that's not going to happen. I think I think some people are they want to see how we can handle it. I think it's almost like let's see let's see what else they can do. Uh, I've 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 got there's a little bit of an entertainment value of how can these guys walk across these coals without getting <laughs> burned. Yeah. And I think there's a point where we're just like that's not really our. <laughs> That's not really why it's we a high this, wire act, so. and half the audience wants us to fall <laughs> and plummet to a bloody right. death. <laughs> yeah. Okay, can yeah. you explain your five reasons why? Sure. As as we sort of, uh, I guess, formulated the idea of the pod, we, we were sort of looking at it and we're thinking, how do we land the plane? Like, wh- what is the synthesis yeah. of these kinds of things? I mean, we can, and you know, we can riff pretty well, just the two of us. But it's like, okay, how do we create more value for the audience? How do we synthesize it in a way that, uh, you know, gives gives them a handle, gives them something to take away from it? And I think perhaps me as, as a strategy person, you know, you're writing a deck. At the end of the day, you've got to give the the consumer, your audience, like the rationale. Like, here is the synthesis of all this information in this familiar construct, or whatever it is. And I thought five reasons why five is the right amount. It's like, you know, it's it's tougher than three. It's more memorable than ten. Uh, and at the same time, I do think it's sort of it's a good litmus test. Like, can we say five like interesting things or, or have five interesting insights slash observations around any given topic? And it's been great. And I think it's, it's also formed a, a pretty good like skeleton for a lot of the discussion that we have. And one, one of the things we, we realized that bringing it up earlier in the, in the construct of the episode uh, helps because yeah. if we put it at the back, then we accidentally cover a lot of the stuff we say, you know, in the five reasons why. So we end up being repetitive. So we've sort of decided to move it further up in the episode. You know, any other thoughts on that, Brett? I think it's forced us to distill. I think a lot of podcasts that I listen to and like, you know, we're, we all love podcasts. I think, I, I think it's a very tangible takeaway. If, and it, I think a lot of podcasts I listen to are really great conversations, but then as soon as they're done, I'm like, wait what, what what was that again you know so i think in this kind of sea of information having these 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 points of of distillation 
within within any particular episode is important. And like Chess said, it is a litmus test. It does force us to say, okay, do we actually have anything we can bring to this that is surprising to people? If we just list five reasons why that everybody already knows, we're not really adding any value to anything. So it forces us to say, okay, how do we like what are we actually talking about here in in a way that's going to be surprising to people? And can we use that as a structure for a conversation? Because I think Chaz and I have continued to experiment with what the structure looks like. If it's just an open-ended conversation, that goes all over the place. Chaz and I are both ADD. We could end up, we could be talking about, you know, meme stocks for the first five minutes, and by the end of the by the end of the episode, we'd be talking about sneakers. <laughs> so it gives us a structure too um, that we have to kind of commit to and and have a discipline towards. So I think that's why the five reasons why stuck and, and to all the things Chaz said. You know, it's, the five reasons why it has a ring to it. It's more than three. It's less than 10. It's a sweet spot. It really helps uh, listeners have a good, uh, clear takeaway. And you have also started to interview um, external guests as well. Yeah. Now, that that's an interesting sort of, I wouldn't say pivot, but it takes you in a slightly different direction with it. What are your plans longer term in terms of how that show structure will, will roll out? You gonna, are we going to see more interviews with... Um, people that spark your curiosity? I mean, I, I think so. There, there yeah. has been um, a, a bit of a snowball effect when someone comes on and, it, you know, you're straight away, you're expanding to their network and, and they're coming across something that, uh, you know, th- their network is being aware of, made, made aware of the Furious Curious. So that certainly uh, expands our, uh, you know, our, our reach, frankly. I also think it, mm. it's quite, I mean, you know, you know this, Mark, with the Impossible Network. I mean, the broad array of personalities that you come across in different disciplines and, and just attitudes and, and geos and backgrounds, I mean, it, that is the essence of what, you know, of curiosity in and of itself, like being being sort of uh, omnivorous in the type of information we consume and personalities that we rub up rub up against is um is fascinating and, and you learn some something new from everyone and, and you under you, your understanding of the world becomes greater so i think it's it's been good for the pod uh we you know continue we're going to be continuing to do this uh you know we're getting a lot of interest around the nature of the get like do we do we go with sort of experts in the field uh yes but can we be a little more um you know, sort of, I guess, approachable. You know, like a friend of mine, he moved to Hawaii. Do, a lot of people are sort of having the sea change where they're moving somewhere else. Do we interview him about his rationale? You know, my brother, he's staying, studying a PhD in um, in Rhode Island at Brown, and he, he's always making insightful observations about American culture. And I'm like, he said, uh, oh, maybe I'll come on, I'll talk about things that Americans like, you know? So uh, the, the, yeah. the exact nature of what the guests are going to be quite a, uh, are going to be pretty eclectic. I think. What What's your take, Brett? I think it's given us, it's given us an opportunity to have a, a little bit more authority on on some topics. Um, I think it's just another format we can draw upon. I think it's the networking thing is totally is incredible. I mean, I think Mark just even talking with you a few weeks ago, you know, that conversation led to our conversation with Vanessa. You know, with um, another tomorrow. And Bill Dowser, absolutely. So I think it, it 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 helps us. It's a totally different format. And I I've what I've learned from it is, and and Mark, you do this really really well. The the inner the art of interviewing, the art of asking questions, is very different than the art of just kind of having kind of a 
a table stakes conversation between two people, you know, as if you're in a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Those are two different dynamics, two different structures. And I think we're still learning how to do the interview really, really well uh, in a way that, um, you know, because every, everybody's different. Everybody's levels of sense of humor are different. Sometimes it's kind of hard to read, you know, what, you know, are they going to laugh at this or laugh at that? So I think we're still learning how to do that a little bit better, but I think it does give us, it gives us information. It reveals some really cool things that you, that we wouldn't have otherwise discovered just by us, you know, doing a little bit of research and then talking about it. That's fine. We do that on a regular basis and people like that, but I think having an interview always surprises us with information that we wouldn't have found otherwise. So, hmm. um, we've, I mean, we're, as podcasters, we've seen the, the, the rapid change that's occurring in the industry with the likes of Joe Rogan going to Spotify. Oh yeah. Um, and everyone, you know, I've we're recording this and I've recorded when I've done face to face interviews, but never really had the time or the bandwidth to really go onto YouTube. But your show feels like it's a YouTube channel waiting to happen. When when do you think this is gonna? We're gonna see <laughs> curious, curious. Can, can I video. ask well, what what full Why do you feel that way, Mark? Because I like I was, I'm curious as to what makes you suggest that. Um, because you paint um, a brilliant visual picture um, mm. in your descriptions of particularly in things like sneaker culture and your references and how you use music um, because it is so culturally about cultural phenomena phenomena it feels like it lends itself to having um, a show that you should be able to show film images music um, and that's why I just think it would be a, it would enrich it. Uh, not that it. I mean, I think it can stand alone brilliantly as an audio only. But yeah. I think it's um, <clears throat> down the down the line. It, it's something I would uh, I would no, enjoy well, watching. First of all, thanks for saying that. And when you started talking about New Balance, and I was like, oh yeah, New Balance Nine Series and all that. I had to go. I was there. I was going on to Google searching to see which ones you were referring to. <laughs> oh. So it's, so it's it's that that I'd be like, ah, oh, if this is on video, I'd be able to that, see that. You know, that's really interesting you say that. I, I've never thought about that, but you're right. Our, our, our conversations do, I guess, um, call for a you know the vivid a vivid expression of certain imagery, certain sounds. So they almost could be mini documentaries in their own way. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think you know that, that's a cost benefit analysis that Britt, you and I, I guess, we mm-hmm. have to make. Uh, it feels like. Like the production lift on those would be significantly more, yeah. higher than our current one, but certainly down the track, I, I wouldn't rule that out. I, I think it's a great suggestion, actually. Just when you were talking there, yeah, I'm like, get, I can't believe I hadn't thought about this. You need to get one of those agency producers to uh, volunteer yeah, their yeah, time. Good call. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the way. Yeah, we we thought about we thought about we've 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 ideated around what it looks like to be video. I think there's something really great about the anonymity of audio. Uh, you know, it's just, um, but you know, we've been thinking about it. I think if we did a YouTube channel that would involve video for us, you know, we want to do it right and do it in a way that's quality. Um, whether that's just the two of us talking, you know, I guess, you know, if we get back together, Chesnut, we're talking about, you know, what that visually could look like. Do we have a big furious, curious logo on the wall that pop in white? Um, you know, I'm, I think there's a lot of things. That I'm, can going, I'm going I, back to the reference to the Muppets at the beginning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the balcony. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, I mean, rest assured, we will be wearing shirts. 
I mean, yeah. <laughs> maybe yes, and maybe pants. Yeah, yeah, hopefully, hopefully. yeah, hopefully, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, listen, in the, it, um, I'm conscious of time, so I want to get into the quick sure. questions and have sure. a bit of fun. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So you talked a bit about uh, early on about the values that were um, instilled in you by your parents, but what principles do you both stand by and hold true? Britt, you want to take this one? I have to think about that for a sec. I would. Okay, that back I'll to go. You, Curiosity. Oh, we can any any of these. We can. Skip That's all right. Um, I'll say curiosity, energy, positive momentum, clarity. Uh, mm-hmm. They're things that I aspire to. I don't know if they're necessarily principles, but certainly uh, benchmarks that I like to hit in my day to day living. I think. Uh, I think for me, it's. I've realized just hard hard work is the most valuable thing. I think, you know, applying this to the podcast, we felt, why Why do podcasts fail? It's because people just do not see it through, do not mm-hmm. finish. They don't persevere. So I've always, perseverance for me, fairness, um, you know, growing up, I was always taught to treat people with respect no matter what, um, believe in yourself, you know, believe in a power greater than yourself. Uh, my parents taught me that, um, you know, and then I think to sum it up, uh, you know, my parents always taught me this this idea that I always go along with, which is, you know, don't do what you're supposed to do, do what's right. And sometimes that, those are not the two the, the two things. Those are not always the two same things sometimes. So I think that's kind of like that's how my parents have really impacted my worldview and taught me as I've kind of traversed through this this life. Okay. What hard choices have you uh, both had to make that may have been tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision? Hmm. I've passed on jobs uh, here and there. Yeah. Uh, in in the short term, I, I've regretted them and thought they might be career limiting, and, and perhaps they were. But you know, everything's opportunity cost. You know, if I went on that path, I, I wouldn't have ended up where I am now. Uh, and uh, you know, let's say hindsight's twenty twenty, but it's also um, reaffirming. <laughs> it's like okay, you know, like any sliding doors moment. You know, some, you know, you could have ended up with an alternate reality and. I'm very happy with where I'm at, so I, you know, I I don't regret ever having you know not made certain tough decisions. I think for me going going to ad school, you know, I was probably older than most people for a career change. You know, I was in I was in music before that and had a music curation company and was doing okay. I was really happy actually, but I just you know to really undo all that and then to go. And moved to a city. I had to move to Atlanta for school, for ad school. And the culture shock of that as a northerner, as somebody who'd never actually had lived in a large city like that before. Um, you know, when I lived in Chicago, I was a suburb, so that was different. So I think like just picking up and moving and just kind of being open to what's next, I think has always been a hard thing for me. But I've always leaned into that, you know, whether that was that or, or then moving to L.A. I got an internship at Crispin Port and Mugusky, which is an uh, uh, advertising agency. I had three days to get there and my wife and I left in suitcases. And, wow. um, you know, that's just kind of like I think a, another part of me would have been like, oh, that's not I don't know where we're going to live. Like, where's where in L.A. is it like, you know, all these questions will come up or you just like, OK, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go and do this. And, you know, all those really, you know, even moving to San Francisco, um, you know, I went back and lived in my hometown for two years of Madison, Wisconsin. Um, 
I wouldn't, you know, if I, if we hadn't uprooted again and moved to San Francisco, I wouldn't have met Chaz and, um, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do the things I've been able to do here in the past five years. So every single time, you know, those decisions have been really hard, leaving people that you love, leaving family, leaving communities, but there's always been that payoff on the other side. Um, So, yeah. Well, I think it sounds like it's completely tied up in the serendipity of you two coming together. So, (laughs) yeah. Um, As idea people, um, that uh, ideas form the foundation of what you do. Where do you go to discover new ideas? I mean, on the daily, like going walks, runs, like I I just had one this morning for a project I'm working on. I'm like, wow, that's amazing that that just came out of nowhere. Uh, It's always when you are, you know, the subconscious mind is a very powerful thing. And when you give it uh, the opportunity to ideate, you know, just to, to wander, it's amazing what, what comes to you. I also I, I get inspired walk, walking around in bookstores. I know they're a dying breed. But where else do you get that exposure to a range of different perspectives and ideas? Because, I mean, if, if you're browsing Amazon, it's, it's going to, you know, like you're gonna, the algorithm is going to spit out things that, you're, that you've done in the past. And like walking around mm-hmm. in a bookstore... Is that forced serendipity that I think is incredibly powerful, and also just you know, in, in continuing in that spirit, I love going to art galleries. Um, uh, you know, even as a kid, where I, I didn't really understand the, the purpose of a lot of it, I liked the vibe. It has a, there's a cathedral of solitude and, and creativity within any type of gallery, and I, I've uh, always enjoyed that as, as 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 a fertile way to stir up new ideas. It's interesting, Chaz. You know, you and I have never really actually talked about that, and I I draw inspiration from those two things as well. Um, you know, I think I think thirdly from 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 that, I love to just do Google image searches and searching different things. I know that's a, probably a modern um, way to explore, of course, but um, I have found really interesting outcomes creatively when I just start to put together almost mood boards of things that I don't quite know what that is yet. Um, but I can see it. I can see it. I also think on my feet. So I really love whiteboards. I love to think on my feet. I like to get off my laptop. There's too many things crammed in this box of a laptop that, that wants me to be distracted and do something else or text or whatever, uh, or email. So I try to get off my, my laptop um, I do have this deck of cards that I've built over the years called, I call it just consult the deck. And over a, a couple of years ago, I, um, I crowdsourced a whole bunch of advertisers, uh, you know, all over the world to just give me one little bit of, you know, what's a, what's a little strategy that you use to, to kind of jumpstart, you know, your, your thinking. Um, and that kind of came from this idea of uh, oblique strategies, which is a, another deck of cards mm. that I've used in the past uh, by Brian Eno, who's a, yeah, it's uh, a great one. A musician. Yeah. And so I use those and those are those are typically applied to art and, and music production. But I have actually found some really serendipitous moments um, applying those types of strategies and those types of cards to to advertising ideas. Yeah. OK. Um, I'm going to have to skip through some of these questions because we've only got about eight minutes left. So sure. I'll ask you an impossible question. What would your advice be to someone that's either going to study, it's got a goal, a grand ambition, but it's being told, yeah, you'll never do it. It's impossible. My, ad- I'm yeah. sure yours, I'm sure yours Britain is about hard work. But I'm sure <laughs> appreciate. Sure. My advice uh, would be to determine, is this something you really want to do or is this 
or is it a performative act? Um, Ooh, yeah. Like, because I think a lot of the time, you know, there's all these studies around this. A lot of our decisions are subconscious. And, you know, we make out, you know, we go through our lives on decision-making autopilot and you might have fallen into something and, and, and think that you want to pursue an idea when you really don't, you, you may or may not. Uh, it could be done in order to impress your friends or your parents or other, you know, members of the, you know, your peers. So I would say determine, is this something you really want to do? Determine, is there actual real value in doing this or is this an act of indulgence and, and sort of, uh, you know, performative, you know, performative act? If it's not all those things, it's of genuine utility to the world, I'd say don't listen to anyone else. Like they don't know what they're talking about. They haven't thought about this as much as you. They haven't kicked the tires on it. They haven't done the homework and they can't control how committed you are going to be to it. So I'd say if you feel like this is something you truly want to do, that is a valuable endeavor, don't listen to anyone else. Pin your ears back, you know, go nuts. Yeah, that's that's really well said. I would, yeah, I, I don't I don't have anything else to add to that. That's great, Chess. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, we're coming out of lockdown. Um, yeah. And you're going to karaoke. Um, what's oh, a, what's yes. a, what's the song? This is you. You go what first. What is the song? No, this is you. We we are we are a karaoke pair. That's that is something we jove you know with much jovial ambition came and did all the time. You know, here in San Francisco, you and I go into the pagoda. <laughs> yes, we have a few times. Uh, I, I don't know why this is coming to mind. Um, it's not a super well-known song. I, I, I'm going to go with uh, yeah. "Cheap Trick Surrender." Um, yeah, yeah oh, it's great. One. It's not as well good? known today, and it's sort of like a fringe karaoke. But it's easy to sing. It's popular. It um, it brings great energy to the environment and. Uh, Attitudinally, that's something I want to <laughs> associate myself with coming out of the pandemic. Chaz always picks really surprisingly awesome uh, <laughs> karaoke songs that really that really resonate with with the crowd. Why I'm not, I shouldn't be surprised. So uh, for me, let me think here. I've always liked that's why they call and that's why they call it the blues Ooh, by Elton good one. John. John. Yeah. But see, the problem is, is I'm a musician, so I I get into my own head about stuff, and I will just sing my heart out. But that does, that's not a that's not a banger. That's not a crowd pleaser. So. You know, I think I, I I rely on Chaz more and more for my catalog <laughs> choices. Okay, uh, then. and I will well, do that even more so as we as we come out of the pandemic. All right, then. Well, then, uh, over to you for the best recent series or film that uh, or something people should watch um, that you might have encountered during lockdown. I mean, I, I'm going to have to go with Ted mm. Lasso on this, and and and, and the other wonderful. reason I say this is like mm. like people sort of view it and they think, oh, there, there's a there's a corniness to it, and it, it's totally unrealistic. Both true. But as you know, I played, Brit, you and I, we've played sports our whole life. And, and so often it's always a familiar, you know, a staple of a, of a coach's comment. Oh, it's not just about them making them better footballers or better players. It's about them becoming better men. And, and, and you always hear that, but like fortune cookie wisdom, but you never see that in the behavior. Like, you know, coaches can be militaristic. They can be jerks. They can be like, you know, drill sergeants. And But Ted Lasso, I mean, he's like, first of all, he knows nothing about the sport. He has this beginner's mind, the spirit of approaching something, you know, with fresh eyes. He, you know, he surrounds himself with the right kind of people. 
uh, you know, more, people more knowledgeable than he. He, uh, I love in one of the opening scenes, he like puts books in all of his players' lockers. And like he sh- he's really cares about their uh, personal growth. At the end of the series, you know, Jamie, Jamie Tart goes up plays for another team. He's still writing him a handwritten letter to encourage his development, even though he's left for another team. Uh, like Ted Lasso, the character is unendingly positive, and I think we can all be cynical around his attitude. But if we had more Ted Lassos in the world, the world would be a better place. That's what I, I think. That's why it's really that's struck that's- a chord with so many people. Yeah, I think for films. So I've I recently started doing like a little film club with my with my childhood friends, and they pick the films because I just trust their decisions. So one one actually I we watched last week was uh, a two thousand one film Ghost World. Is it, have you guys heard it? Seen it? I don't think I have. I may well. Have. Oh man, I think it's Scarlett Johansson's one of her first first films. Mm. Probably you know professional films anyway it's just a really really great film before that we watched charlie chaplin's the great dictator i don't know if you've seen that um i rewatched that again recently so that was really really good um run all the run masterpiece uh, uh, so i'm just kind of going back and taking inventory of some of these films that maybe really came out either either before i was born or when they came out maybe i just didn't have the the full appreciation for them at the time. So I've been able to really rediscover some of these, particularly Ghost World. It's just such an excellent film. So that, that'd be my one, recommendation. I'm going, to throw, I'm going to throw one back at you. Yeah. Um, my Dinner with Andre. Mm. Oh, that's on our list. That's on our little short okay. film list here. Okay. I, yes. need to follow, I need to follow up with you when you've seen that then. See what yes. you think. Okay. Yes, the 1980 film. We're, actually, that, that's what we're going to watch next. That's so Good. coincidental that you say that. That's actually okay. the next one we're going to watch. Yeah. Cool. Okay, books. Yeah. Um, we like to offer listeners um, a book that our guest recommends uh, if they make a best comment on Instagram or on the website. So yeah. what book should we offer? I, sure, I can jump sure. in, Chaz, what I think. Uh, I've really loved um, recently, and I've read it multiple times actually, is Rework. Mm. Uh-huh. Uh, it just it it just made me realize how, uh, and I, it's the it's the two guys who created Basecamp. Um, J- J- Jason, yeah, yeah, Jason Freed, and David Heinemeyer Hansen. Yeah. yeah, it's a very quick read, very practical read, um, but it really opened my eyes to just always rethinking, rethinking, reworking. Why you know why why do we do things the way we do? Are there more efficient ways to accomplish the same thing? You know, somebody who's always taken the hardest route all the time because that's how I always did things is I would just outwork people. I started to work smarter after I started to read that book. And like I said, it's a very quick read. You could sit down and probably read it in one sitting, but it's a really, really practical read that I found a lot of benefit from. You know, I'm, I haven't read this all, all the way. I'm uh, currently in a book club with my child. I'm reading Ready, Ready Player One with her. Uh, fine book, great, nice. wonderful idea. Uh, in this case, I would say Atomic Habits by James Clear. You know, Britt, you and I have talked about this a couple of times. Um, why I like it, 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 in another way, it could be called Trust the Process, which is the philosophy underpinning mm-hmm. the Philadelphia 76's rebuild. It's like fall in love with the things that you have to do, optimize those the process of the day to day, because that old is the journey. It's not the destination that will make you a more um, you know more productive, more fulfilled, more engaged in your work every day. I, the, 
you know, Atomic Habits by James Clear, I think, really sets the path for that. Cool. Okay. And final question: Who should we interview next? I got a, I got a couple Ooh. of thoughts on this. I, I haven't got, I haven't got their permission. I mean, should, can I, can I tell you privately? I mean, uh, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. Do, do, yeah. do you have That's any fine. ideas, Brett? How did we connect? Did you did, have you interviewed recently anybody, um, Mark, like in the restaurant or small business industry in terms of what it's been like to really manage a small business through through this through this pandemic? Um, only Robert Marchetti, who we do the raw hospitality show with at the same time. So gotcha. Okay, yeah. gotcha. But I'm, happy to do. I'm, happy try, to, I'm trying to think happy it's... to do another. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I, honestly, I don't, I don't have somebody that comes to mind. I'll have to think about that and then email you. Uh, okay. So we'll, that way, we'll like, if up. if we know that they, you know, they, that they know that we've connected with you. So yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I just want to um, thank you um, and acknowledge you for um, what you're the work, the work that you're doing outside your advertising sort of careers and deconstructing the complex and and what's come across in this is just the the power of your work ethic um certainly you've written talking about that um we we interviewed um emily oberman from uh pentagram and she described herself as a beautiful weirdo <laughs> that was encouraged by her parents and of something one of you said about mis- being a mis- been misfits and i think there's something i think continue with the intellectual being intellectual misfits because i think you see the world in a different way and you represent it to people in a with with fresh eyes or as maybe what you described, Charlie, as a beginner's mind. Um, and also just your fiendish focus that allows you to really hone in on these highly um, engaging and, and informative uh, subjects that you're deconstructing. So, yeah, um, sort of more power to you. And I look forward to more uh, quantity and even more quality down the line. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Mark. It's Thank been a, a great pleasure and a real honor to be on. Yeah, and, and and Mark, thank you for um, thank you for being on our show also, and just thank you for inviting us on, and and just for doing what you do. You know, as 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 people hopefully go get deeper into the Impossible Network, just to see the amount of interesting conversations and how your network has expanded. Um, you know, at bringing bringing people together the way you have, we've been a huge benefa- beneficiary of that. So thank you for 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 doing that. Thanks right. for having us. Thanks, Mark. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.